You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. We are still in the studio. If you caught, um, well, today's earlier episode, <laughs> I guess, um, you'll know it wasn't our normal thing. Uh, if that was your first episode, I'm sorry. Uh, that's <laughs> right. not representative of what we typically do here. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it felt, I, it was just, it was weird. So, um, yeah. but you know, people, I guess they want to know us for whatever reason. I yeah, if, if you want to get to know more of our story, go hit up that episode. If you want to just go with the Bible study, this is the right place. So I and guess we're not offended at all. <laughs> yeah. So let's, I, but yeah, let's go ahead and uh, let's do that. Yeah. It, we're actually not going to spend a lot of time in the Bible. Uh, we, I mean, I've got Bible in here, of course, but um, we're going to pause and talk about what was going on. Uh, you know, we just finished up. David had had tried to talk to Jonathan about what Saul's intentions towards him were. And Jonathan has gone to the new moon feast, feast of Rosh Kodesh. And David was not there and Saul gets angry. And then there's the whole episode with the arrows. And so the, the feast and the purpose of the feast are kind of just mentioned in passing in, in the story. And it's kind of like just a prop, a, a scene that they're going to play out, but there's not really any kind of real specifications given about what's going on. Right. So I'm like, why this feast? Why, why is this the one that we're talking about? I mean, Judaism has a lot of different feasts and a lot of different celebrations. So there has to be something special about this one. Okay. So I had to do some digging because one of the things that I haven't spent a lot of time on is studying the feast not because I don't appreciate them. I, I think they're, they're really good as far as instructing us on um, observances and foreshadowing. There's a lot of symbolism in it. I think most Christians are aware that Passover is a reflection of um, the Last Supper or that the, mm -hmm. the Passover was the Last Supper and that there is a lot of um, symbols that are pointing towards Jesus even at that early date. But there's so many more feasts besides that. So. One of the things that bothered me when we, we moved out of the story um, immediately prior to Jonathan David's uh, interchange, this is when David had gotten a wife. Right. And we talked about that. And it seems like the women are just suddenly gone. Now, women in David's story are really important. So it seemed weird to me that the women would just disappear. Well, you know, it's... It's because, you know, once women get married, then you stop paying attention to them, right? Is that... Uh, well, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people think that's correct. <laughs> I'm totally joking. <laughs> I, I know you are. <laughs> uh, but uh, I talk to a lot of women, that's not the case. So uh, men, if you're married, you might want to pay your wife some attention and I'll quit meddling in your personal life. And <laughs> so... I think of uh, was it seven brides for seven brothers when Adam... <laughs> when, uh, Millie mentions that Adam could learn some manners, and he says, what do I need manners for? I already got me a wife. <laughs> oh, okay. This is where I'm going to try not to go off about what is so wrong with that. Look, if you had to chase a woman to get her, you need to chase her to keep her. And <laughs> chasing her can be as simple as actually noticing that she cut her hair or served you a new dish. So, uh, so yeah, <laughs> we're going too far on that. And I, yeah, definitely, yeah, maintain your relationships. It's a good idea. It, always. So I, I, I thought, you know, maybe I'm missing something because women seem to be gone for so long. And as I began to, to look at this particular celebration, I realized that the women are still very much present. Uh, they're just hidden. And they're hidden in the way that Saul hides everything in his life between, behind piety, through ceremonial observances. They're, they're hidden with the, the properness of what he's doing that isn't quite proper. Mm -hmm. And so we've seen this whenever, you know, he offered the sacrifice that he wasn't supposed to sacrifice when he made that rash vow uh, concerning whoever had eaten that day. And we find the same thing is going on here. So 
when Jonathan and David make their plan that they're going to test what Saul's doing, it is at this, this celebration of Rosh Kadesh. And we have several clues in the story that the women still play a part, but you have to know the history. And that's the thing. These biblical writers assume that the person reading this, they're going to be Jewish. They're going to be living in the same time. They're going to be living in the same kind of culture that would provide their readers with all this background information that most modern Christians simply do not have, or we've got just little fragments of it. Right. So Rosh Kadesh is a very fascinating um, holiday because, first of all, it's the first holiday that's given to Israel as a nation. Even before Passover, this is the holiday that as a nation they're supposed to observe in Egypt. And we find this in Exodus 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, In the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months, and it shall be for you the first month of the year for you. So this, this new month that's going to kick off the, the Hebrew calendar, even before Passover arrives. So it comes up again in Numbers 10.10. 10. And it says, on the day of your gladness also, and on your appointed feast, and at the beginning of your months, that's Rosh Kadesh, you shall blow the trumpets over the sacrifice of your peace offerings. They shall be a reminder to you, of you before, before your God. I am the Lord your God. So we aren't told any specifics on how this holiday is observed. Then we have... Uh, in Numbers 28, we get a little bit more detail. This is Numbers 28 through 11 through 15. I'm not going to read that, but it describes the offerings that are given in the New Moon Feast. Two bulls, one ram, seven male lambs that are a year old, um, flour, oil, and wine. So we've, we've seen these show up in other feasts mm -hmm. in previous stories. And we're specifically told this is the burnt offering of each month throughout the months of the year. So for every month, at the beginning of each month, the people are supposed to observe this feast and this offering is supposed to be given. So the reason why this is so fascinating, there, there's several reasons. So I'm just going to kind of go through them. So number one, it's the only holiday that is not celebrated as a remembrance of a specific historical event. Mm -hmm. So with Passover, you're remembering coming out of Egypt with Sukkot your, or Sukkot. You're remembering camping in the wilderness. All of the feasts and the celebrations, all the other feasts and the celebrations are looking back. They're, they're remembering this time that God has intervened in history. Right. Rosh Kodesh is about looking forward. It, it's about anticipation because it, it does center on the moon. Remember, the, the Hebrew people kept their calendar according to the moon. They mm -hmm. still do. And the the idea is that as the light of the new moon is extinguished as it's no longer visible that you're supposed to anticipate when god reveals his glory in the fullness and the beauty of the the full moon so it's a reminder that there's this yes you it may look like god is not seen he's not visible for mm -hmm. a moment but he's going to return so you're supposed to be looking forward with anticipation for god's return and, you know, for Israel, of course, that's the Mashiach. That's, that's right. uh, you know, that's, that's who we as Christians acknowledge as Jesus. So the, the celebration is deeply tied to the kingship because the only times in the Bible that we have it recorded as being celebrated is when there is a king in Israel. And the waxing of the, the, the waning of the moon is to remind us that Israel's kings Sometimes they were great, and sometimes they were pretty horrible. And even in the most dark times of the, these kings, when they were so horrible, we, we're going to get into some really awful kings as we move forward. Right. God always anticipates that day when he will rule in fullness as, as the king. But specifically, Rosh Kadesh is connected to David. I mean, obviously, we have David mentioned here. We just talked about observing this celebration. Right. But at, at one point, the Romans forbade the, the observance of Rosh Kadesh. They said, you, you, you are not allowed to do it. So the, the Hebrew people worked up a, a code, a, a system of being able to still celebrate that maybe the Romans wouldn't notice. 
And so at the beginning of Rosh Kodesh, they would announce it by sending out the message, David, king of Israel, lives and endures. So this is how connected that Rosh Kodesh is with David, because Mm. David in particular, we know that there's times that he's a fabulous man after God's own heart, and he does all the right things. And then there's times when he just makes a mess of everything. Right. So in, in Rosh Kodesh, um, you can't begin to celebrate it until the light of the old moon, and that's how it's referred to in the Hebrew literature, is completely extinguished. And if you don't have the old moon completely extinguished, then you can't celebrate the light of the new moon. And Saul is seen as the old moon. He, he's the light that was extinguished. David is the new moon. He's the one that's going to reveal God's God's glory even more completely. He's going to shine forth with God's love and kindness and forgiveness, and it's going to flood all of Israel with God's presence. But David also had to be symbolically extinguished before Saul, before, well, from Saul's table. He, he couldn't be a part of that old regime. So by not being at this feast when they set up this test for Saul, there, there's this symbolic extinguishment from Saul's kingdom. David has removed himself from Saul's reign. And it's only after he does this that he can take his rightful place as the rightful king. So, yeah, yeah, uh, you know, but David, part of of David's, um, the beauty of who he is, when David's getting it right, he understands that the light that shines forth from him is reflected off of him. It, it's not of his own making, that he is reflecting sure. back God's glory. So he, he gets that. And that's the reason why, one of the reasons why this holiday is so connected to him. The other interesting thing about this holiday, it, it's a time that is determined by human witnesses. Like I said, whenever Rosh Kadesh was forbidden, the, the Romans, they would say during the time of the Romans that you know, King, King David the king of Israel lives and endures. So the idea that this holiday had to be announced, and it was announced because two people had witnessed that there was no visible light in the sky. So this is the only holiday that humanity actually claims and says, yes, we're going to, to take this as our own, as a time of, of celebration. And it's not something that God said, this is when you celebrate it, so this is when it begins, whether you celebrate it or not. Mm-hmm. It only begins with an act of human will to, to engage in this moment. Hmm. So the, the celebration of the new moon also is unique in that it's one of the few holidays that celebrates the beauty of creation. Uh, very rarely in Judaism do we have any kind of... The, the, the physical world is good because it's God's creation, but we have to remember that pantheism was so much a part of their culture that they did a lot to separate themselves from right. it. So you had to be careful with how you dealt with creation because you might accidentally worship creation over the creator. Yeah, I, I did actually wonder about that because there is a very big emphasis on not worshiping the objects and and the fact there was a new moon celebration in it at all kind of seems a little weird in in Judaism. And in fact, I mean, like, I, it's one of those things that I barely even think about or hadn't mm-hmm. really even, I mean, it's like, I, I know the verse that Paul writes about not being concerned with what people say about the new moon or mm-hmm. the Sabbath. Um, but we didn't learn a whole lot about it in church. And, and in fact, there's a, there's a story, um, I don't remember, yeah, it's in Everyman's Talmud, so I, it's, my books are packed up, so right. I can't <laughs> reference it, but there is a, a story of one of the rabbis asking God why he doesn't just get rid of all the idols, and the, the, the reply essentially was, well, if I get rid of all of the idols, then the things that remain would be seen by the other people, uh, by the by the people who worship the idols as superior to the idols. And mm. so if you got rid of all the idols, they would simply turn to the sun and the moon to worship. 
that's that's one of the things I love about Judaism. It's so practical. Uh, I, I mean, you just you you see those kinds of answers, and I it, it's very spiritual, but there there's still this this very grounded nature to to almost all the answers. Yeah, but yeah, I just, I did think that was just kind of it's an, it's, yeah. it's an interesting question too. Well, God, why not just destroy all the idols? Get rid of all the evil. Why not? Yeah. Well, and but, that's yeah, and because you know God stands and there's no image. Mm-hmm. You know, so you just have to know he's there. <laughs> well, I, well, I take it even further because um, you go back to John Walton's um, books, uh, Genesis Lost, and he talks about the fact that, uh, or the lost world of Genesis, sorry. Uh, he talks about creation being a temple account, and what's the last thing you put in the temple? That's the image of the God. Mm-hmm. Well, and what's the last thing God creates? Well, that's humanity. And uh so we are created in his image. And Carmen Iams uh, has a great book. Um, now I can't remember the name, but the importance of Sinai is part of the, the subtitle. Um, bearing bearing the, the name. Bearing the name. Okay, I it's bearing the name. Yeah, I feel bad because double check. I, it, yeah, it's a great. I, Carmen's got some great stuff on that, and hopefully we're gonna. Uh, she's already agreed to be on the show. We just got to get our schedules lined up. So, but in this in this celebration. Um, Bearing, bearing God's name. Bearing God's name. Okay. Yeah. So Carmen and I, you guys want to check that out. But in the celebration, you, you, you're supposed to go outside and you actually stand under the moon and you hold your hands to the heaven and, and you pray this prayer. Praised are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who created the skies with his words and all the heavens host with the breath of his mouth. He gave them appointed times and roles, which we were going back to Genesis with there. God creates mm-hmm. the sun and the moon for times and seasons. And they never missed their cues during the crea- doing their creator's bidding with gladness and joy. He is a true creator who acts faithfully and has told the moon to renew itself. It is a beautiful crown for the people carried by God from the birth and parathetically from the birth of Israel, who will likewise be renewed in the future in order to proclaim the beauty of their creator for his glorious majesty. Praised are you, O Lord, who renews the new moon. So it's not a prayer to the moon. Right. It's a prayer that says this symbol shows us a spiritual truth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know, during the dark times of the moon, it's appropriate to, to, to do teshuvah, the, the repentance. And that way, if you've repented during the dark times, now you can truly celebrate when the light returns. Huh. Yeah, it, I, I, there's so much wrapped up in the symbolism of this holiday that it, it just... It shocks me. Yeah, that, it, I mean, that definitely reminds me of kind of a solstice festival type uh, of attitude. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to talk a little bit about the controversy because of that attitude. Um, but but the, the faithful and those who interpret it, I think, correctly, they, they believe that for just as sure as the light of the moon will return, God returns for those that repent. And, you know, I think that's a truth that we as Christians, we can hold on to and that we can claim as part of our own heritage. Now, how far back we can trace this prayer or these observances, it's kind of a matter of debate. And, um, you know, were they new in the era of rabbinic Judaism or do they reflect prior uh, traditions? Anytime you start looking at the Talmud, we got to remember it's written about 150 years after Jesus' life. Um, we don't know how much of it was based on earlier oral traditions versus how much of it was kind of fabricated and inserted. I tend to think a lot of it really is based on those earlier traditions. So I, I tend to have what might be considered, quote, a liberal view of the Talmud. And, mm. um, I, and so, you know, I don't agree with everything in there, but that's, that's not the point. The point is I can learn maybe what people who were, you know, relatively close to Jesus' time, thought about these celebrations. Now, the most unusual aspect of this celebration, at least from my perspective, is that Rosh Kadesh is specifically a holiday for women. And during this holiday for women, women are exempted from work, not men, just women. Mm. And so a lot of what are considered female uh, endeavors are are suspended. So sewing or knitting or doing laundry, washing the dishes, cooking, these things women don't do. The men do them, but they have to do the, you know, they have, when I say they do them, they, they would have to prepare the meals and that sort of thing mm-hmm. while still maintaining their regular schedule, which 
that's interesting for a society that has been painted as so terribly patriarchal that women right. had no rights. So I, I, I kind of really love this holiday the more I've studied it. But there's, there's a lot of speculation as to why this is a woman's holiday. Now, obviously, uh, the moon and women have, it's always been very connected symbols. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of cultures tie it together. Very much. Um, and the, you know, the moon is considered to be a feminine element and the sun is seen as a masculine element. And many ancient goddesses, you know, they, they had the moon as their symbol. Mm -hmm. And there's a theory that women who live in societies, now, like I said, theory, okay? There's a theory that women who live in societies without artificial light menstruate on the new moon and ovulate on the full moon. Now, some of that's been debunked, but we do know that there has been some, there are studies that do confirm that light therapy and following those cycles of the moon actually increase fertility. Hmm. So there is an actual connection between the light that that's present during the night and women's bodies. And I thought, wow, that's, that's kind of fascinating that that would be, um, that the ancients kind of had some kind of grasp of this. But like you said, the, this, the solstice kind of idea or the, the, the view of, of, uh, kind of the paganism creeping in, mm -hmm. that was something that the rabbinic rabbis were, were the medieval rabbis were rabbinic rabbis. Uh, the medieval rabbis were very conscious of, and some of them actually did condemn this as a way for women to be able to continue to worship their fertility goddesses under the guise of proper spirituality. Hmm. So definitely, um, what you saw, it, it's, it's right there. So that makes it we have that means we have to go back and ask, do we have any biblical basis for this idea that um, that women are going to be um, that this holiday is for women? Sorry. So Rabbi Eliezer claimed that the holiday was given to women due to their faithfulness at Sinai. So. The story is, you know, Moses has gone up on the mountain. Mm -hmm. He has been up there for a prolonged period of time. And the people began to get impatient. And so it, Exodus 32, 1, it says, when the people saw that Moses had been delayed, um, the word there, delayed, is ashamed or frustrated or disappointed. And this, this usage of the word seems to indicate that they expected Moses at a particular time that he was supposed to return on a specific day and he failed to do so. Okay. So we're going to come back to why that's important. But the, in the people's frustration, they, they go to Aaron and they demand that Aaron, you know, build this golden calf, but pay careful attention to the words in, in this verse. This is from the ESV. So Exodus 32, two, and Aaron said to them, take off the gold that we are, that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So Aaron said to them, that's masculine, mm -hmm. take from your wives. So the women, the rabbis picked up on the idea that the women were not included in this, that they did not give willingly. They're not active participants in this, that the, their gold had been taken from them by the men. Therefore, the women were not guilty of the sin of the golden calf mm. like the men were. Now, all of the all of the adverbs or um, sorry, all the pronouns in this section are all masculine. All the action pronouns that each one of them. Aaron told the men they took. That's the men, and Aaron received from the men. Mm -hmm. And so the 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 willingness of men to do this versus women is further highlighted because when we get to the building of the tabernacle. It's the women who devote all of their time and all of their energy into the construction. Matter of fact, if you look at the list of workers in the tabernacle, it's the women, not the men. There's a few men, but overwhelmingly the numbers are women. Hmm. But I mean, it makes sense because we're talking about sewing curtains. We're talking about weaving tapestry. There wasn't a whole lot. I mean, we, we had some metallurgy and we had a little bit of carpentry, Yeah, but the basic structure was fabric. 
So the question then is, why wouldn't the women participate in building the golden calf? Now, this is where I think it's, it's kind of interesting because the women didn't think Moses was, delay, was delayed in his return. The men thought that. The problem was the men miscounted the days. Who doesn't miscount days? Who's used to counting the days? It's women. Women from all cultures and all different societies, they have kept track of the days because it's necessary. It's a biological imperative. Right. And so with the women being the ones who accurately assess the days, they actually showed that they owned time. They're saying we get to claim time and dictate to, to master its dictates over our lives. We don't, we aren't at the mercy of time because we know what time it is. And sacred space in the Bible always follows sacred time. I mean, we have God creating in the beginning or when God began to create, we've got this point in time where God sets the clock into motion, so to speak. And only after that does he create Eden. And so in their actions, the women have honored sacred time. And the sacred time here being the time that Moses has spent on Sinai with God. And the time that Moses spends on Sinai is when God can build, uh, as what leads to building the tabernacle. So the rabbis saw this as women reclaiming a little bit of Eden that, that paradise lost because they said we, we master time like we were supposed to. Because mastering time means that you're free. And if you own your time, you were not a slave. However, if you don't own your time, if somebody else gets it, if somebody else has control of it, now you're completely at the mercy of someone else. So Rosh Kodesh becomes this remembrance of the women who were faithful at Sinai to honor that sacred time, the ones who were, um, who were willing to, to say, this time needs to be devoted to our Lord. And this is the reason why it's a women's holiday. Hmm. But like everything, the problem, <laughs> there's always a problem. Sure. But the problem is how far back can we date this? Uh, is this rabbinic conjecture? Is this based on something in the Bible? And so when we start doing some digging in the Bible, we find there's really not a lot said about Rosh Kodesh in general, aside from, sure. yeah, aside from the verses I already read. Uh, we have Psalms 81.3, blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. Okay, so we're blowing a trumpet. Uh, Isaiah um, 1.13 and 14, these verses talk about God being tired of sacrifices and feasts and the iniquity of the assembly for, new, for the new moon. So it's a time of judgment. And, and Isaiah 47.13, there's some indication that some divination practices have been co-opted into the new moon celebration. Mm-hmm. So in Isaiah 63, 33, from the new moon to the new moon, from the Sabbath to Sabbath, all the flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Ezekiel 45, 18 says that the princes, it's the prince's duty, the king's duty to provide sacrifices for his people in the new moons. And that's the king who's supposed to make atonement for the people at the new moon. Ezekiel, when it's talking about the temple complex, Heiser talks about this in his, um, in his study. The gates of the temple are going to be closed except for on the new moon and on the Sabbaths. Okay. So the people are supposed to bow before the Lord. This is Ezekiel 46.3, before the gates of the new moon. Hosea and uh, Amos present the new moon as a time of judgment. But that doesn't really tell us a whole lot about the structure of the form. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's not, not a terribly large amount of detail there. Yeah, and there's really no connection with women in any of these passages. So we, we have a problem. But the one clue we do have, and it's, it's threadbare, which is kind of frustrating, yeah. is 2 Kings 4.3. And this is the story of Elijah and the Shunammite woman. And in this story, and we'll, we'll go over it when we get there in more detail, but this woman's son has died, and she knows to go to Elisha and say, hey, you know, you need to fix this because mm-hmm. this was a child of promise. And so she tells her husband, hey, we need to summon the prophet. We need to get him here. Sure. So we're told in 423, the husband says, 
Why will you go to him today? It is not a new moon nor a Sabbath. So evidently, there is some right afforded to women that on the Sabbath and on the new moon that they would go to the prophet. And the idea that the, that what the rabbis say is that they're studying the Torah during this time, that they're, that they're learning with him. And, you know, the husband doesn't seem to, to have any major concern or uh, surprise that she's going to go talk to the prophet. He just thinks the timing's weird. Yeah. So evidently, this was a standard practice for her. <clears throat> and the fact that it's presented without any comment or caveat makes you think that this was part of the, the standard celebration. Yeah. Or at least, there, yeah. I don't know. It's... I, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to, to, to see if there's anything there that I can think of, but I've got nothing. <laughs> well, I, it, there's not a whole lot beyond that. So, you know, we're, we're really having to, we're, we're really having to read into the celebration to, to get the idea that it is a women's holiday. Mm -hmm. But I think there's at least the hint, but that, and you know, when we go back to Saul's celebration to to his feast with david and jonathan we are told the seating arrangement and we're told that jonathan is opposite of saul abner's to one side and david's to the other but where are the women what are they doing during this feast and it's like they've completely disappeared from a celebration that seems to at least have some ancient ties now how deep those ties go or how how far people went to to commemorate them we we don't know but Women weren't excluded from the feast in, in Judaism. There wasn't a separate man feast, a woman feast. There, there is a feast where families come together, communities come together. Right. So why aren't the women there? And, you know, a whole lot's made of David's relationship with, with women and how, how problematic it is. And, you know, he, he's not great to the women in his life, and we just need to acknowledge that. But we often overlook at how problematic Saul's relationship to women is mm -hmm. um, the problem is is that they don't exist they they simply aren't there i mean in saul's kingdom his wife never once makes an appearance right the only time we hear her spoken of is whenever he's cursing jonathan mm -hmm. when his daughters show up it's because they're pawns and now they're excluded from the feast of the lord what's going on with that and it seems like the only time that the women in saul's life even have an identity is when they come in contact with David. It's when David enters their life that they have the grace of a name. And David, if you look at his, his life, his life is defined by the women in his life. Uh, he's introduced in the book of Ruth. That's where we first learn of him. Mm -hmm. And so it's a woman who introduces, introduces him. It's a woman who prophesies of his of his reign mm -hmm. and with Hannah and it's the women who are going to save his life over and over again. We've got already had Macau. We're getting ready to go into Abigail and it's a woman who is going to use his death as a way to promote her own son. And plus it's a woman who reveals that David is dying. So, you know, David has eight named wives, one named concubine and several unnamed women in his life. Otherwise. So, it's even possible that one of David's wives, uh, Ahinonon, sorry, that's a weird name, Ahinonon, uh, was a former wife of Saul. Now, this is based on when Nathan, the prophet, goes to David and he says, I have gave, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom. So the idea of David having one of Saul's wives, who is now named, actually kind of goes along with my theory that women in Saul's lives don't have names until David interacts with them. Hmm. So I, I find that to be, to be a rather interesting idea. So, well, David's, you know, his relationship. I mean, is that any kind of like parallel to if we, we're not really fi finding our identity. We're not really brought alive until we are in Christ kind of thing or is, well, is, you know, that's a good question. Um, you know, this, I mean, if, because if we look at David as, as the, as kind prototype of prototype for foreshadowing, a, a type of, yeah, uh, you know, a type of, of Jesus, uh, in a lot of ways, but 
then also not. I don't know, but I, I was trying to think of what the significance is there that that they don't have names until David arrives. Well, I, I, I don't know exactly. I haven't put all the puzzle pieces together, but I do think it shows that women are important and they have significance and they have impact in David's world. Mm-hmm. Where, where in Saul's, they, they're just non-existent. And they cannot be discounted. David, the women in David's life cannot be you know, ignored. They, they have to be factored in into who he is as a person, as he's evolving as a king. Mm-hmm. We, we have to accept that, that they are significant. And the biblical writers, even though a lot of times the, the stories might be kind of minimalistic with the women, mm-hmm. Even in that minimalism, they, they provide a huge punch. There's a great impact of their stories. So you know, when we talk about patriarchy and we talk about how that influenced the writing of the Bible, it's interesting that these women still shine forth from that kind of culture. And um, you know, to borrow a phrase from Amy Bird, you know, these gynocentric interruptions really are the, the, the landmarks of David's rule. I mean, and this is how we gauge where he is and, and how he's functioning in alignment with God. Where and how, where are the women in his life? How is he treating them? And when he's treating them right, and we know that he's right with God, when he gets out of sync with God, this is when women are, they're endangered by his existence. Yep. And, you know, and it's, it's a small step forward um, according to the standards of our culture and our day. But in, in this society, it's huge. And, and I think even our own reactions to, to women and, and what we consider you know, conservative biblical um, reactions to women shows you how huge it is that these women do have these roles. Because a lot of times when, when certain schools of thought, certain... <laughs> I'm trying to be nice here. Uh, It's hard. (laughs) But when certain people read these stories, they try to, they try to, to downplay what the women are doing and they try to, to downplay what the, the significance of the women are. And yet we still see it. Right. And the fact that they can't be covered up, they can't be hidden. It is a huge testament to the value God has placed on them in his word. Well, and, and, and just, just to, you know, let's just say, you know, I know you're probably thinking of John MacArthur and his talking about how women didn't really contribute to prophecy or anything <laughs> right. like that. And then, you know, he downplays this idea of, of like Miriam prophesying in the Bible. And that was obviously recorded and sustained through history. Right. And, but the thing is, you know, he, he downplays it because, oh, well, that was just kind of a musical number. Mm. And it's interesting, you know, you go into Deuteronomy 32, and what's God doing? He's teaching Moses a song right. to teach theology with. Yes. And you can't discount that because it's Yahweh. Right. And here again, you have, you know, you were talking about um, Yahweh uh, using the same verb or... Uh, Etzer. Yeah. Yeah. As describing Eve. And it's, and here he is doing the same thing that a woman is recorded doing in the Bible. Now, of course, you know, granted, David writes plenty of Psalms mm-hmm. as well. But at the same time, at this point in the Bible, there's not a whole lot of singing going on up at this point. Mm-hmm. And so I do find it really interesting, you know, if, if it, or I find it, it's, it's, incon- it's inconsistent. And again, you know, it's not to, to just name names to name names, but that is a really big thing that's gone on recently is his statement that, you know, there were no women, pro- no sustained prophecies by women in the yeah. Bible, and that's just patently false. Well, so. and whenever we have, you know, some of our two of, I think, the five oldest pieces of the Bible that we have is Miriam's song and Deborah's song. Mm-hmm. And, and the fact that these are the songs that were preserved. And so you want to talk about sustained prophecy? We still read them today. How's that? Yeah, uh, I know. You know? Well. I mean, and it, it these... Songs should influence the way we read the Bible. And so when we, when we see these women who, despite all these years uh, of neglect in, in scholarship, mm. still making such a big statement, I, I, that's a testament. And mm-hmm. we, can't, we can't ignore that. I mean, if, if the Bible was such a slave to patriarchy, 
their stories wouldn't exist at all. Right. So even their presence contradicts a lot of our, our presuppositions about the text and about the culture. And, you know, I'm not saying the Bible wasn't written in a, in a patriarchal society. It was. Right. But was it done correctly? Was this the time of Judges 1 when Axel goes to Caleb and says, Dad, give me a gift? Or are we at the end of Judges with the Levite and the concubine? And so with, when you realize David's not that far removed from that time period. Right. Now we have a whole different uh, way of evaluating him. This is not the, the time where women get upset because of men say, uh, tell them to smile. Uh, this is not a time because women lose their minds because a man pays them a, a sincere and appropriate compliment. This is a time when women had no rights. Right. And David is going to show that he can at least hear the women. Mm-hmm. Maybe not all the time. But when he's where he's supposed to be, he can hear the women. And that's when I, I can't wait to get to Abigail's story because that, that's a, a killer story. Uh, no pun intended. So Yeah, and that's, and that's one that I, I, I honestly am not terribly familiar with. There's, it we, wasn't we gloss, taught. We gloss over so much of this in Sunday school. Yeah. That it's, it's really hard to, to get a, a full picture. And even, you know, as we're going through and I'm, I'm looking ahead at what we're going to be going over, it's like there's... There's such a rich story there mm-hmm. that people just forget. Well, and I'm finding as we're going through, I'm trying to remember what I need to remember from, from past episodes that I need to bring forward mm-hmm. so that we don't lose that connection and that there is a continuity and there's a continuity that flows from judges all the way through to the end of Second Kings. And so those, all of that fits together. But then you've got to bring the prophets in because when were the prophets prophesying? During the time of the kings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and actually, one of the things, speaking of previous episodes, and I'm going to kind of derail us here for a minute, but one of the things that um, I thought of after we recorded last last week, and of course, last week's recording was just <laughs> fraught with uh, craziness, and I was having trouble focusing. It was a long day for me, even though we had already, you know, it was just in the morning, but um. One of the things you mentioned with Jonathan and David's plan, mm-hmm. and after um, after he shoots the arrows, David comes out, and they interact. And you're like, what happened to the secret plan that was supposed to keep right? Jonathan from being seen <laughs> with David? I think, I, I think what happened, um, this is just pure conjecture, but my guess of what happened was that Jonathan wasn't actually expecting to have to send David away. Oh, that's a good point. I didn't think about that. And at that point, his plan just went right out the window. Yeah, it's like reality just crashed yeah. down on him. And uh, he was like, this might be the last time, this might actually be the last time I get to see my friend. That's a really good point. I, I, you know, and I try, and I know last week I totally violated like my own real rules because I was psychologizing the text all over the place. Um, because, but I felt like... Um, it was very. Sorry about that. I forgot to put my phone on. Do not disturb. Go ahead. But I, I felt like that the, the symbols, uh, the 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 clues to see the psychology were actually present within the text, um, and it's really hard not to psychologize this book because it is, it, it's a book about real people. Uh, it, it, we're moving away. I was thinking about this last week, and so kind of derailing, but. You know, I think it was interesting. As as we move into Samuel, we're kind of moving away from that era of the big miracles. We're we're moving. You know, we're we're not the Exodus. Right. We, we don't have the ten plagues. We don't have the creation account. We don't have the the flood account. And we're seeing God begin to operate within people's lives and, and to do it more intimately on a one-on-one basis. But we're also seeing where God is working on his plans more through providential means, through things that can be explained through just kind of natural events and circumstance and not always in a supernatural way. And right. we're really going to start getting into that when we um, get into Kila. But the, the ideas that we're seeing in Samuel are, are you can tell that this is a total different era from Genesis. And you know, you know how much I love Genesis and that's like my candy, mm-hmm. but the, 
I think we can identify with the people in Samuel more than we can, can with those in Genesis. Yeah. And I almost hate to say that because you know, I, <laughs> I want us to be able to go back to that, that place in Genesis and, and really try to find our, our way of, of addressing and, and being a part of that, that conversation. And we do that through imagination and, and trying to envision what it might be like to participate in those events. Well, in, in Genesis, it has this, you know, it's this grand overarching uh, type of story that involves, even though you still have some very personal stories, mm-hmm. a lot of the stories in Genesis are all of humanity did this, all of humanity did right. this. So it's it's very, it's a very different style of storytelling where this is very focused on people's lives. Well, and I think that's one of the things about studying the Bible and getting familiar with the way that the words are written and, and the phrasing and the tone and the mm-hmm. rhythm. You, you can begin to see, and I, I think, I hope our, our listeners are beginning to see that as we go through Samuel, that there is a distinction between Genesis and Samuel, and, and the, the, the writing style and, and the perceptions of the people has changed. Mm-hmm. And if you get familiar with your Bible, you can see that even in the English translations. It's easier in the Hebrew, don't get me wrong. It's a whole lot easier, but at the same time, I think it's still present. Yeah. In, uh, so that's one of the benefits of just going over and over and over the stories, and there's no shortcut to that. You just have to do it if you want to get to know your Bible. So, so we're, we're back to Scripture now, and we are in 1 Samuel chapter 21. David has left Jonathan after Saul uh, confirmed his intentions to kill David. Oh, so that was a good segue back into it what was. we're doing. Yeah, it, actually, it was great. <laughs> so uh, from here on out, First Samuel is going to talk about David's flight from Saul. That, that's all we're going to talk about. And on the surface, this is like the most boring sequence <laughs> of events for me. I, so, I had to force myself to study this. David went to this place? Saul followed. Yeah. David. <laughs> well, and pretty much. And, and there's several accounts that are very similar to each other. I think it's 24 and 26. I mean, like the wording is almost ex- identical. Mm-hmm. And so we, it, it can seem very repetitious, but you have to dig further because now we're looking. Yes, there's repetition, but these repetitions, that's what's shaping David. It, it's really part of his spiritual formation. Mm-hmm. It's this time in the wilderness. So we're going to kind of move quickly through the last part of 1 Samuel. I mean, I say quickly, it, relatively for us, okay? Uh, so we still have several weeks of this, but, but I'm not going to like break so, down. So a few weeks, not a few months. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I don't think a few months. We'll just see how many rabbit trails I, I wind up going down. Yeah, so. Fair enough. So verse 1, we're told that, that David goes to Nob. Uh, in your Bible, it says Nob. Nob. Sorry, I have a hard time saying it. Nob. Nob. Hebrew, nov. Um, and Ahimelech, not Abimelech, Ahimelech is the priest serving there. And so he, he comes out to David and he's trembling. And David and demands to know, why is David alone? So Nov is the place that has become the primary location of worship since the destruction of Shiloh. Y'all remember that place way back at the beginning of the book. Who is trembling, David or the priest? The priest. Okay. The priest is trembling. And that is... The wording's a little ambiguous. It is. When you start talking Hebrew pronouns because of the sentence structure, sometimes... Even even in the English, it's here. Yeah. And Abimelech came to David trembling. Was David trembling? Or was Mm -hmm. he... Okay, go ahead. Yeah, well, and that's the reason why sometimes you need these commentaries from the ancients to let you know exactly who it's referring to. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, I oh, couldn't man. resist, could you? <laughs> I read the ancients, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> rather Sorry. sister moment there. Uh, so, yeah, after Shiloh was destroyed and the death of Eli and Finkas and Hofni, which, you know, that wasn't that long ago as far as history uh, and is, is concerned, uh, this is where the royal place of worship has kind of been established. The ark's not here. It's still at Kirith Shirim, um, where the Philistines had take, where it been taken after it was returned from the Philistines. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, this is still very much in play. However, the other ut- utensils of the tabernacle that were created for worshiping God were, were there. And the priests are still performing sacred duties. So 
we're not told why David chooses this place. Um, we, we just know that, and that he flees. Uh, and so there's a few different possibilities and some, some speculation. Uh, it's a Levitical city. And as a Levitical city, it could function as a city of refuge. So yeah. there's the possibility that he was going there. The problem is, if you go back to Joshua, this is not listed as one of the cities of refuge. And David also doesn't show any intention of staying here. So I think that theory is a little weak. Um, also, the, the city officials don't have any provision for any visitors. Uh, they seem to be at a loss. So wait a minute, somebody showed up. What do I do? And so, <laughs> so you know. I, a guest? We weren't expecting a guest. Yeah. Now, um, he may have been seeking an alliance with the priest. You know, remember, it's not that long ago that the house of Eli was basically the governing body of Israel. Right. And so then, you know, Eli's house gets killed and then Samuel becomes the governing body. And he's also one of the priests uh, and as well as a prophet. And so maybe David was thinking, you know, the, the priests have been displaced. They, they don't have the same prestige. Maybe he'll resent Saul just a little bit, and I can find an ally. Mm -hmm. Possibility. I, I well, and it's that's just a good political move to have the religious leaders on your side. Yeah, well, it is, and we're going to talk about because David's. Uh, the, yes, you're you're ahead of me. <laughs> so, oh, sorry, but well, well, the problem with this theory is David never makes any overtures to form a political alliance, and you know his cover story is going to be, "Hey, I'm on a mission from Saul." Yeah. So well, I do. Yeah. And the, the priest immediately says, why are you here by yourself? You know, okay, at this point, he probably knows that David's working for Saul. So he does. Absolutely. Yeah. So you and if you're that high, if you're high enough in the ranks that you're at the king's table, you don't go anywhere alone. Exactly. Yeah. You're going to go with a whole retinue, uh, at least two or three armed men at the very least. And mm -hmm. if you're the king's son-in-law, probably more than that. Yeah. So the the other possibility uh, is that he could be hoping to inquire of the Lord. I mean, this is something that you did. You went to the priest. You hoped they pulled out the Urim Thummim, and they they would um, divine God's will for you and, and give you some guidance. The problem is, it at no time in this account or this encounter are we told that David inquires of the Lord or even asks for it. The only time that comes up, we're going to find out this guy named Doeg brings it up, right? And then you have to ask how reliable is Doeg's account of what went on. But we're going to return to that. Number five, and this is the one I lean towards, it was the closest place. Fair you know, it, it's a close place. He knows that there's going to be food there. Why is there food there? Because this is where the nation gathers to, to uh, offer sacrifices. They just had a new moon feast. So there should be meat, there should be bread, there should be, if the nation is doing what it's supposed to, remember we went down that list, you know, you've got the, mm -hmm. the bulls and the lambs and the flour and the wine. Where is it? Fair enough. So we're also getting a little glimpse into the, the spiritual condition of Israel. But if David, who is good at observing God's laws, you know, and he might just assume everybody else is too. Mm-hmm. He, he might expect there to be something there for him to, to take along with him. And also, this is a place he knew. Right. I mean, the, the priest comes out alone, like you said, comes out and like, why are you with me? Uh, and he, he's not surprised to see David. He knows exactly who he is. And now the, the priest is identified as Ahimelech, very mm -hmm. close to Abimelech. Uh, Abimelech was a, pal a Philistine king back in Gen Genesis. Um, he was uh, Gideon's son in Judges. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that case, Abimelech or Avimelech, my father is king. Here it's my brother is king or brother of the king. Okay. So now Ahimelech's brothers are Ahiah and Ichabod. These are sons of Pincus, who one of Eli's sons, mm -hmm. who was killed. I remember that guy. Yeah. And so he's not quite the brother of the king because, um, but very close because his brothers serve the king. We, we've seen them earlier serving on Saul's behalf. And when Abimelech comes out, or Ahimelech, it's hard to remember to not say that B, uh, comes out to meet David trembling. He, he knows something's amiss. You know, like you said, members of the royal household 
just they, they don't travel alone. And his trembling reminds us of another story, though. It reminds us when we're going back to when Samuel went to anoint David mm-hmm. and the elders come out, that same word, trembling. They're like, what's going on? Why are you here? And they think that, that Samuel is there to engage in some kind of justice or some kind of punishment for a murder. So the, the, we have the same thing, but this time it's not the priest going to the city. It's David coming to the priest. Mm-hmm. So verse two, uh, David said to Ahimelech, the priest, the king has charged me with, with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I charged you. I have made an appointment with a young man for such and such a place. Okay. David's lying. For such and such a place. <laughs> yes. That's it. It's <laughs> I know. In your, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, we don't know exactly where to, over yonder. We're going <laughs> to meet in a general that way direction. <laughs> so, I mean, he, he, he's lying. Um, and not very well. No, I mean, it's kind of, yeah. But the other thing is, is he lying? Uh, you know, n- nobody likes the idea that King David, a man after God's own heart, can lie. So we have, um, you know, we, we've got systems at play. So we're all okay with the Bathsheba story, but lying, that's just wrong. Right yeah, I mean, but the, some of the explanations that, that people have tried to come up with is, um, who is David saying is king? Is it Saul? Because if he's talking about Saul, then obviously, yes, it is a lie. But remember, he has basically elevated Jonathan to the position of king. In the previous story. So is he talking about Jonathan? Is he talking about himself? Is he talking about himself? Is he talking about God? So that's, that's a question that people have asked. It still comes off as a lie. That's what it feels like to me. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm fine with David doing stuff he's not supposed to. I mean, I'm not fine with it. <laughs> right. I mean, I'm fine understanding that David did things that were not okay. He's running for his life. Most of us won't even accept responsibility for the mess we created in somebody else's house. We'll, we'll blame it on the dog or the kids or, you know, whatever to get out of it. And David's running for his life. And who are we to think that we're not going to lie in this situation? Unless you have been there, don't tell me you weren't going to lie. Okay. That's just kind of the way it comes down to in my head. But and the other thing is, too, when did he make plans to meet with these guys? Do we know for sure he made plans to, to meet with guys? I mean, now... It, or maybe his plan was to somewhere find some people to recruit to his cause. Yeah. Now, we do know um, this is one time where you really need to, to read all the scriptures that apply Mm-hmm. to the same story, because this story is mentioned again in Mark 2 and Luke 6, and Jesus actually says that David had men with him. Right. So the, that fills in the blank that the writer of Samuel, they don't care. I mean, yeah, David's got men with him, big deal. Um, we're focused on David. We, right. we need to look at this, this event. So this, but the other thing in there is Jesus is actually affirming oral tradition about the book of Samuel by referencing this. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that because it's, it's interesting how David, I mean, sorry, how Jesus used the story of David to actually teach some, some lessons and affirm oral tradition. And so that's, pull that from Dr. Young's book. Yeah. <laughs> but so verse three, David demands to know what the priest has on hand, you know, whatever's in your, around, you know, just give it to me. But then David asked that he be given five loaves of bread. Uh, so this is, these are large loaves. They're, they're made with like a full ephah of flour. So, I mean, they're, they're bigger than, they're not a loaf of wonder bread is what I'm trying right. to say. Five loaves is way, way too much for one person. Right. It's not enough for an entire battalion or unit. It, so the probability is David did have a couple of men that he was going to meet. And this is the only hint the writer gives us. Now, of course, the rabbis didn't buy it. They, they're like, no, he got five loaves of bread to represent the five books of the Torah. And so, you know, th- there's the, the allegory and the metaphor that comes in. Uh, you know, it's a nice number. So the priest tells David in verse four that they don't have any common bread, that um, 
any profane bread because in Judaism, you either have sacred things or you have profane things. Mm-hmm. The, and the idea of something being profane, it didn't carry the same connotation that it does in, in our culture. I mean, we, when we think of profanity today, we're talking about, you know, foul language or you know, things you don't say in front of your grandma. That, that wasn't what it meant in the biblical time. In the biblical time, it was just referring to something that was not specifically dedicated to God. So, you know, my shoes are profane, my, my TV is profane, not because of what's on it, but just because it's not something used in the worship of God. And he says they do have holy bread. And, and he says, if your young men have kept themselves from women, then, then he'll give it to them. Um, now, in verse 6, we're going to be told exactly what holy bread is. But this, okay, this verse is hilarious. Um, because the priest is doing everything in his power to be proper. We, uh, we already know that he, he knows David, and we already know that polite speech to a superior was customary. And so when a speaker would address a situation that might you know, border on offending whoever they're talking to, like when David was talking to Saul before going to, mm-hmm. to um, meet Goliath, and, you know, David tells Saul, let no man's heart be troubled or, you know, or whatever it was. He said, let, you know, but it's the idea, let no man's heart fail. Sorry, I got my notes. He, he, David's not talking about any man. He's talking about Saul. Don't let your heart fail because of Goliath. But David mm-hmm. couldn't say that. And now the priest, he can't say to David, hey, have you been messing with the girls? Right. So he can't ask this outright. But what I love about this, David already has a reputation that the priest is saying, hey, we got to address this side of who you are before we can go any further. This is very telling about, you know, David was, he was a bit of a tomcat. And, you know, he, he didn't have any problem with, with being open about this, evidently, because even Saul Previously, whenever he was, David was missing from the new moon uh, ceremony the first night, his, his concern was, oh, well, David must be unclean, and this is why he must be unclean. And so, yeah, presumably, presumably, yeah. yeah. So, David really, uh, you know, I guess we're beginning to get hints. He's, he's got a reputation. And, but the, there is a theological um, message to it. Men, regular men, even warriors, could have holy bread as long as they were ritually clean. Mm-hmm. So, and not just as long as they were ritually clean, but as long as they were involved in a holy cause or because their lives were endangered by hunger. And the ritual purity in, in battle, it, it's outlined in Deuteronomy 23, verses 9 through 14. And, you know, we, we know ritual purity involves, you know, abstaining from sexual relationships. We know that it involves not touching dead bodies, mm-hmm. not having mold, you know, contact with mold or what have you. In, in a battle, the dead body exemption is removed, and really the focus is put on that sexual relationship and whether you had been engaged in that. And we know that in other uh, times, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, particularly the War Scroll, war scroll um, sexual purity during times of, of uh, battle are also, uh, it's prescribed. Right. And so it's not specifically, um, something that the Torah itself says is required, but we do see it there. And we also see it with Uriah Mm -hmm. speaking of Bathsheba, you know, David tries to send him home to his wife and Uriah says, you know, no, not, not for me. Right. Because I'm engaged in this battle. So this idea that no one else can touch the, this holy bread actually had exemptions. Hmm. And so we're going to talk about that because that's what Jesus brings up is why is there an exemption? Jesus wasn't saying, it's okay, David broke the law. Right. He's saying, but there, you got to have the whole story. Right. So um, unfortunately, most of us in modern Christianity don't have the whole story. And um, so that's one of the things we're going to talk about. As we continue, I'm not sure exactly where I bring it in, but it's in my notes. Okay, cool. Somewhere. Well, let's uh, look forward to what else we've got. Um, I'm excited to get through this story, um, just to kind of see what happens next, because we are getting to the part where things get even more complicated. Like, there, 
Uh, mm-hmm. When David and, and Saul get into more of an open conflict, yes, the the story gets even stranger. Oh, so. yeah. David, it's always going to escalate. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, anyway, um, yeah, so we're going to break there, and we'll see everybody next week, and we'll pick up uh, right here after David eating the showbread, and hope you had a good time, and hope you enjoyed uh, getting back to the Bible on this episode. I, <laughs> yeah. I was a fan. So. <laughs> anyway, if you want to be part of the conversation, hit us up uh, next time, uh, between now and then. Uh, Raven Creek SC on all the social media, ravencreeksc.com gets you to every place that we're connected to, I think. And uh, other than that, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.